1: Hey, folks, and welcome to Typology, the show in which we explore the mystery of the human personality through the lens of the enneagram. I'm Anthony Skinner, producer of the show, and we're happy to have you here this week. We've got a great guest this week, Kerry Newhoff. He's a former lawyer and founding pastor of Connexus Church. He's also the author of several best-selling books, including his latest, Didn't See It Coming, and he speaks to leaders around the world about leadership, change, and personal growth. The Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast, one of my personal faves, and Kerry's blog are accessed by millions of leaders each year. So you're in for a treat. This is a really great two-part podcast. Today will be part one of our two-part show, so you'll want to stick around next week to get the uh, rest of the show. It's a great conversation between Ian and Kerry. Don't forget to follow us on social media. That is at IanMorganCron on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can also follow us on the show. That's at Typology Podcast, at T-Y-P-O-L-O-G-Y Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. Also, if you love the show, we would sure appreciate it if you would go over to iTunes and leave us a great review, hit the five stars. It really helps other people find the show and helps them get this transformational tool for themselves. Hey, well, that's it for me, Anthony Skinner. Again, we sure are happy that you've joined us. And now, here is the host of our show, Ian Cron.
2: Carrie, my dear friend, welcome to Typology. Hey, it's great to be here. What an honor. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, I mean, I've been, I've been looking forward to this
3: because I've been spending a lot of time with leaders lately. You know, I, I spoke at LeaderCast, and then I recently spoke at Catalyst. And so, you know, you got rooms full of leaders, and they're trying to understand themselves and the world in which they live so they can be, you know, optimal in their various roles. And um, so you are the leader dude.
2: <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I spent a lot of time thinking about leaders, too. And uh, when you start things, you get to be a leader, right? Because you just create something and then you say, hey, guess what? I'm the leader. So that's been my story for 25 years.
3: Mm. And you are an Enneagram 8 leader. I am. Natural leaders.
2: Yeah. Natural leaders. It's interesting.
3: Probably your whole life, right? Your whole life you've been a leader probably. Since
2: I was a kid. Uh, And it's one of those things. it, It was so interesting because as I've shared on my podcast, I've had you as a guest. Uh, I was late to the party. I've only been into the Enneagram thing toward the end of 2018. And I had some of my, my staff and friends texting me with like, I think you're a three or a seven or an eight. And then the closer people, like the closer people got to me, the more they knew me, they're like, you're totally an eight. And then when my long-term assistant who's worked with me for a decade emailed me, she and her husband, she's like, you are so eight, it's ridiculous. And then I finally took the assessment. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm an eight. Okay. My wife is like, yes, you are. And and that's not always good news, as you know. You know you can be an unhealthy eight or a healthy eight. And as a healthy eight, you save the world. As an unhealthy eight, you destroy it. So, yeah, there's all that.
3: Well, yes, of course, you guys are, are forces of nature. And those forces can be positive or they can be negative. And I'm glad in your case that it's positive leadership.
2: We, we are in the process of redemption. Shall we say that? That's a, that's a nice way to say it.
3: Yeah, that's a good word for it. That's a really good word for it. All right, so I'm excited because I want to talk about your book, Didn't See It Coming. And the reason I'm excited to talk about it is when I first saw it, I thought, that is the name or the title I could have used for a book introducing the Enneagram to people.
2: <laughs> It's true, isn't it? It's about self-awareness. It's all these things that you didn't know were at play that are at play. And you're like, oh, that's what that is. I mean, that's how I felt when I read The Road Back to You. It's like, of course. And I mean, like laughing out loud at certain pages and almost crying at others.
3: Mm. So as you think about the Enneagram and leadership, why should a a leader... Know the enneagram and their enneagram type.
2: Well, what fascinates me about it, Ian, and again, you know, I'm fairly new to the party, but I've, I've been at this a couple of decades, and I've been leading teams for a long time, and I've run people through Myers Briggs, I've run them through Strength Finders, I've run them through uh, other assessments like Right Path, and, and so on and so forth, and they've they've all got a role, like they're all mm-hmm. helpful. Uh, and, and I'm a firm believer in assessments and self-assessments and 360s and the whole deal. But the Enneagram, I mean, particularly the way you have described it, it entered the vocabulary immediately. The challenge with a lot of other assessments is that you do them and like you even have to go back into your files to remind yourself, what did we pay for again? Or what did we, what did we learn? And uh, with the Enneagram, I mean, it shows up in our weekly staff meetings where my team is like, hey, this is like totally one of me, but just so you know, or, um, hey, the nine in me wants to like, I don't know why it's so memorable and so portable, but it is. And it's, it's very, very accurate. And it helps us understand each other a lot better. And then for myself, uh, I mean, that line in your book about, I, I think it's when you told people to read twice and underline and, you know, if they memorized it, you give them points or something. It was an eight doesn't need to be in control and eight d- just doesn't want to be controlled, that describes my entire life. Like so mm. much became clear in that moment where I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly it. Because I've always said, well, I don't have to be the senior leader, but oh my gosh, I'm not going to work for that guy. Or, or, you know, don't make me come into the office at such and such a time. Or uh, there's just this like, almost almost like you're, you're, you know, someone's trying to tie you up. And you're just kind of breaking free. And you're like, no, nah, I'm not going to get tied down that way. And that just so perfectly described my life. And my team, as they've gone through it and continue to go through it, uh, they're saying this is so accurate in helping me understand myself and uh, helping the team figure it out. So to me, it lays at the gift level. It's just a gift. And so it's, mm. it's really helped me lead others better. And it's helping me lead myself better. Mm. yeah,
3: self-leadership I I uh, I frequently say to people you have no business leading others if you don't know how to lead yourself first. Yeah
2: well that is a game and and that is the hardest level of leadership you know, as my friend Jeff Henderson said of all the people I have to lead, the most difficult by far is myself and I would agree with that you know self-leadership mm. never stops. It starts for me uh, with an hour in the morning that's really quiet time with me and God reading the scriptures praying. And a lot of my prayer these days, and I've started journaling again this year, is just like, well, where'd I screw up this time? And, you know, there's always a list. There's always a list. Yeah. And and why do I do that? Like, why why am I in this space? Why did that bother me? Why did I say that? Why did I feel that way? And, you know, you're not looking at stuff that gets you jail time, um, but it's the question of (laughs) (laughs) of whether or not, you know, it's a question of whether or not people really want to be around you, whether you're really you've got a marriage that's rich and deep uh, whether your relationships are solid or you know my tendency which is just to throw myself headlong into stuff and ignore the important things in the name of things that are important you know that's the fun part about church leadership is you're doing stuff really important while you're ignoring it on the side mm. you know i have been reading uh, this
3: little book there's a do you know uh, a land de botton he's a sort of a contemporary thinker. He may be a Canadian. Really?
2: No, I I don't know that.
3: Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, he has a little group called The School of Life. Oh, wow. Um, And check out their website. It's fantastic. But they put out these really winsome, very well-written books. And one of them is titled Self-Knowledge. And I am handing it out to everybody, to every leader I meet, just saying – because I'm such a big proponent, as mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. uh, with mm-hmm. leaders, you have to know yourself. So let me read you this quote, because it ties right into your book, um, Didn't See It Coming. So listen listen how he starts off this, the book. He says, one of the most striking features of our minds is how little we understand them. Mm-hmm. Although we inhabit ourselves, we seldom manage to make sense of more than a fraction of who we are. It can be easier to master the dynamics of another planet than to grasp what does it play in the folds of our own brains. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and you see, this is what I – I mean, this is a message I would have for leaders. I know it's a message you have for leaders, right, yeah. is that you can really only – how would I say this? Um, effective leadership is – can be correlated to how much you understand uh, what is driving your thinking, your patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting, understanding other people's uh, personality patterns as well. Because ultimately, uh, when people say to me, I didn't see it coming, Mm. I think to myself, that's because you probably assumed you knew yourself.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yep. And you know it's interesting when it comes to self awareness, uh, which I think the the enneagram is a master class in self awareness, and of course understanding team dynamics. But uh, from my research anyway, and and some of the wider reading I've done, two of the greatest predictors of success in leadership are one, emotional intelligence, and mm-hmm. uh, a big part of that is is self awareness. So self awareness, self regulation are two major components of. Uh, emotional intelligence, and it's the always the emotionally intelligent leaders that seem to do the best. I mean, you can look at that in Daniel Goleman's research. You look at Jim Collins and what separates level four from level five leaders, um, a single quality, which he didn't even want to include in the report, and that was humility, that there's this mm. steely, steely, steely resolve, like, and the mission is bigger than me but a humility, not a grandiosity, not an ego. So, I mean, that is what I would call emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-regulation. And then the second largest factor is communication skills, um, which is just your ability to communicate with the team, whether that is casting vision or answering emails in an appropriate way, or being able to rally a team around a cause that is bigger than you. But you think about how big self-awareness uh, how big a role that plays in that because nobody nobody likes to work for leaders who are not self-aware. You know, the blind spot, you walk out thinking you've aced it and your team is all talking in the lunchroom about how awful it was and they're making fun of you behind your back and you you have no idea. Oh, or they go mm-hmm. home defeated and discouraged. You know, that's why Patrick Lencioni got into what he does today. And I mean, he's literally changed the lives of hundreds of thousands of leaders and he said my dad had a good job but he had a bad boss and his dad would come home discouraged and defeated every day and so pat decided you know as he tells the story that he wanted to go into helping people to become much better at the people part of leadership and uh, that's so that's why i've become a student of the enneagram and i'm looking forward to going even deeper in it
3: yeah. I was just listening to a, a podcast this morning with Jordan Peterson and General Stanley McChrystal.
2: Oh, I just listened to that one last week. That's a fantastic Did you, interview. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yes.
3: All about leadership. Yeah. And uh, they they, as I recall, they touch on the whole issue of humility, which I think is one of the gifts of the Enneagram. Because yeah. unlike so many other personality assessments, typologies, however you want to view it, um, it just doesn't focus on what you're good at. Um, it 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 really reveals w- what happens, right? Uh, when your particular personality is on autopilot and you don't see it coming. Yep.
2: Yep. Yeah. No, that's very very true. That that is a, anybody who hasn't heard that that was on Jordan Peterson's podcast, was it not? Yes, and, it was. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was really really good. Yeah, it was. those two guys are genius, and Jordan Peterson is a great question asker. Mm. So. If you've only heard the hype, you should actually listen to what he actually says because it's fascinating. Um, yes, yeah, no, but I I agree. I, and and you look at McChrystal and the incredibly complex task he had in leading the military, and you know humility and or humility rather than military leadership don't often go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's what uh, you know in in the best assessments I've read, and certainly my assessment of uh, me being an eight. It's very sobering and it's very humbling. And as you say, all of the types are rooted in a sin. Mine happens to be lust, not in a sexual sense, but um, what intensity, human dynamo's, right? So we just—I think you say in the road back to you, if anything's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. And my wife would say that is absolutely correct. That so describes you, Carrie. And uh, you know why do it? Why do it a little when you could do it a lot? It's crazy.
3: Right. So let's talk about uh in your book, didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. You have as I recall, you have seven yeah, sort of challenges. core yeah. challenges for leaders. Am I correct? Correct. Yeah. Which are, run us through them and maybe give us a sentence or two on each as to why these are challenges for leaders.
2: Sure. So these are the ones, what I tried to do in this one was I tried to pick unlikely candidates because, you know, it it could easily be like the challenges of team leadership or whatever. But I I chose the area of self-leadership. And not the public things, but the private things, the things that happen inside you as a leader. So, you know, this I knew was going to be a fun conversation because you focus on the internal and I'm focusing on the internal a lot, too, because I would agree that self-leadership is the hardest thing. And I noticed in my—so these are things that I have personally experienced to one extent or another. But as I've had the privilege of working with thousands of leaders— I've seen them surface again and again, and there's not a lot of content out there on these issues. So take, for example, the first one I address in the book, which is cynicism. Mm. And I'm naturally an optimist. I I now have a reclaimed optimism I'm really excited about at this point in life. But in my 30s, I kind of slid from optimism into cynicism. And I find we live in a very cynical age. A lot of leaders have grown cynical. So that's one of them. Uh, second challenge is compromise, moral compromise. And usually the challenge with that, Ian, is we think in terms of headlines. You know, you wake up in in a bed and you're not with your wife or your spouse, or you've stolen money, or you do something that requires jail time. Um, you know, but that's not how moral compromise starts. And that's not how it really expresses itself. And it's the subtle compromises in character to the point where you look at, okay, your current self, you go back a decade and you're like, Uh, you're different. You've changed, you've compromised, you've given in, you've, you've, you're, you're almost ready to give up. You've given in so much. Well, where does that come from? And how does that happen? And how do you, how do you look in the mirror and no longer respect yourself? So that's compromise. Mm. The third is disconnection. And you know, the weirdest part about disconnection is we live in the most connected age in human history, period, hands down. Um, Yet, we report feeling desperately alone. Mm-hmm. And what is that? Why, why is it that we live in a universe where you can have 500 friends and feel like nobody cares and you're constantly connected, but you're incredibly isolated? So I want to talk about that because isolation is a huge issue for a lot of leaders and frankly for a lot of people. Uh, the fourth issue is irrelevance. That uh, you start off as, as the kid that's, you know, the whiz kid, you're, you're doing great, everything's fantastic, you're the guy, you're the woman, and then you find yourself at 45 and uh, not quite as much of an edge, and at 50, nobody's listening to you anymore, and you can't even speak into the culture. What just happened with that? So that's irrelevance. Uh, number five is pride, and pride is just, uh, I'm sure that's a thing, it would be fun to talk about that through the lens of an eight but or a three. So pride is a big issue for all of us because we're human beings. And there's narcissism, which I don't deal with a lot and didn't see it coming because most of the leaders, particularly in the church space, most of the leaders that I run into, I don't think struggle with pride because of narcissism. They struggle with it because of insecurity. Mm. And if it depends on how you define pride. I define it as an obsession with self. And insecure people are very obsessed with themselves. Uh, How do I look compared to so-and-so? I can't have that person on my team. They're too smart. Uh, Things like that. So I I talk about that. And then we do burnout. Mm. um, Because I burned out when I was about 40. It was the most difficult year of my life. It was a very dark period. And I've come back from burnout in 13 years on the other side. uh, Have really never felt more alive. And I kind of map out that journey. And then finally, emptiness. You know, sometimes because we talked about this before, Ian, you know, you write a book, you're hoping somebody will read it. And all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of copies are sold. And you're like, well, how did this happen? And it's exciting and it's exhilarating and it's wonderful. And all of a sudden you're on this stage in front of thousands of people. But I I saw this early on when I was in my twenties, I was in law because I did law before I did ministry. And I was surrounded by lawyers who had everything on the outside, but were empty on the inside. And I've had a few moments uh, where, well, actually a lot of my life has exceeded anything that I imagined it would. Uh, But if I'm not careful, if I don't cultivate this carefully, uh, I end up feeling so empty. And I'm like, what on earth is that? So those are the seven issues that uh, I try to address in the book. And those are the issues that I think either sink leaders to the point where they're no longer in leadership or they simply cap their potential. So, you you know, you think of yourself at 20, 25, you're excited, you're, you're passionate, and soon your passion is kind of gone, and you're settling, and maybe you're phoning it in, or you're in cruise control, or you've got this numb feeling that's going through your life, and you ask yourself, is this as good as it gets? And the answer is it can be a lot better, but here are seven of the factors that are often at play
0: under the radar in leadership
3: yes okay Uh, as you were going through that list Mm -hmm. my mind was racing at a million miles an hour (laughs) because i was thinking to myself you know each of the enneagram types obviously anybody can any type of person right any Number on the enneagram can struggle with cynicism, comp- moral compromise, irrelevance, burnout, right. the emptiness of success, disconnection, pride. But I think certain types would gravitate toward one of these challenges more than others.
2: I I would love to you, have that conversation. Do you do you want to you want to go there? You want to start with cynicism? Yeah, take them in order. Okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Now, I, now I'm you know I'm kind of just thinking aloud here. No, that's great. But. Um, well, for example, with cynicism, again, mm. any type can struggle. But right away, um, I think of ones. You know, right. ones are idealists, right? <sighs> and um, uh, I can see when they uh, go to the low side of four under stress mm-hmm. and their idealism starts to vanish, you know, or feels thwarted. And they can sort of fall into kind of that depressed, uh, defeated um state they become very self-absorbed they can become cynical and uh nobody else wants to be uh you know crusade along with me to perfect the world uh on and on and on fours can definitely lapse into cynicism right
2: right the artistic Uh, profile yeah
3: yes yeah, they can definitely. And actually, I think that for four cynicism can function as sort of a defense system, right? It's hmm. like, let's just be cynical at the outset. So we don't have to be disappointed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Well, let's just get I it do. out of the way. Get it out of the way.
2: <laughs> I was born cynical. You know, I've had people tell me that since uh, the book came out. They're like, yeah, I was born cynical. I've, I was never an optimist, which is interesting
3: yep now I've seen fives be cynics by the way fives have wonderful senses of humor and but the, that sense of humor is inevitably uh, sort of cynical or sardonic you know it sort of has oh. a dark funny edge but but fives can be almost like too smart to be hopeful do you know what I mean right, yeah. they can
2: Well, see, and you're you're right, because cynicism roots itself in knowledge. You're cynical not because you don't know, but because you do, right? And that's why age and cynicism are frequent companions, because the more you know, the more you realize, wow, human beings really are kind of not great all the time, and life is tough. And and you're right, a five who accumulates knowledge would, would come by that maybe earlier and more intensely than others.
3: Mm. Yes, and again, I think it's a defense, right? Yeah. Uh, and sometimes for uh, a 5 it could be a defense against relationship and connection. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, and and 8s definitely could yeah. could lapse into uh, into cynicism. Would you would you and, say 8s um, are
2: natural like I guess there's probably no universal answer, but like I am naturally an optimist. Is that typical for 8s or or what would or is that like different?
3: Yeah. No, I think a lot of eights can be, um, particularly an eight with a seven wing, right? You, and that's you've, me, you've eight with got a that. seven wing. Yep. Right. And so that, that seven, you're getting flavored with the optimism and the silver lining of the seven there. Mm. Uh, who is, you know, uh, you know, if sixes in that headspace defend with pessimism, right? If they defend the, against anxiety with pessimism then 7s defend against their sort of uh, buzz of anxiety that runs through their life with pe- with optimism. Oh, okay, right? So, they're both different ways, they're, they're they're two different sort of fear management systems, right? Pessimism and optimism. And uh, but <laughs> that 8 with a 7, that would definitely flavor it toward the positive, the uh, we can do it, you know, sort of mindset. Um, so I definitely can see where you would have a, by nature a uh, sort of a positive take on things with that eight with a seven wing, but I do think that eights uh, can could lapse into that sort of dark furrowed brow kind of cynicism about the world. Well, It'd be a little.
2: It's really interesting, dark. Ian, because for me, uh, I, I'd, I'd be curious in your take on this. Like I am an optimist and I will I will find the positive in anything, right? When everyone else is ready to give up, I'll be like, well, but on the other hand, you know, you also say in the road back to you, you say AIDS uh, can smell someone else's weakness. Yes. I smell your weakness from a mile away, which I do, which is not good, right? And so- the darker side the the still to be redeemed side of me <laughs> uh-huh. will will often be very cynical about things but coincidentally at the same time and almost in opposition or opposition i i have this optimistic Overview over it, so I could dismiss you as a human being. You know, we don't suffer, you know, fools lightly. I'm not calling you a fool, but you know what I mean. Like I might, yeah. I might dismiss an individual and say, "Well, yeah, they're not on my team." Blah blah blah. However, here we go. It's it's a really interesting thought. I'll have to process my cynicism slash optimism through the Enneagram.
3: Yes, I mean I think um, you know eights by by nature are suspicious of other people. Huh. Um they 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 tend to uh they you know oftentimes with eights and this is why eights usually have a small band of friends throughout their life right yeah. they may know a ton of people but they really only have five really close relationships in the course of a lifetime true um and they carry those relationships forever right they'll take a mm. bullet for those five people and uh but i think you know eights are always sort of on the hunt uh what are you you know, the sort of the assumption that everyone has a hidden agenda and you know, you gotta be cautious and wary of what other people are really up to. And but once you've got the trust of an eight, you got it for life, right? Same mm-hmm. as it with sixes. And and but there is a slight sort of cynical take on the world sometimes with eights, I think, that they yeah. have to be careful of, that cynicism that that, that sort of cuts in. I was thinking just now about George Carlin's quote about, about, about cynics. He says, scratch any cynic and you'll find a disappointed idealist. Mm, that is uh, and so I think true. That's it's good. Yeah, and I think that's where I was talking about ones earlier, right? There's, if they get disappointed in their idealism, right, then it, they lapse into this kind of cynical – Posture toward toward the world, you know. Anyway, so now moving on to to compromise, mm-hmm. moral compromise. Of course, any of us can 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 do that, right? Yeah, I yeah. Mean, moral compromise can come to any of us. Do you
2: think performers um, are more uh, like type threes? Do you think that they are more susceptible to it because there is a sometimes disconnect between their exterior and their interior? Hmm.
3: Yes, and I think this is tied into it. Now, let's use this phrase, right? If if you know what would be the opposite posture to self knowledge and self awareness, well, it's self ignorance, right? Right. You could also say that it's self deceit, right? Mm. And that this deceit is the problem that threes have to face, right? Mm. Which is, um, I have adopted or I continue to adopt so many masks to win over the. Approval and the admiration of others. I want others to see me as a success, so I'll, I'll adopt any mask I, I need to in order to win that admiration from others. And the deceit comes in um, as self-deceit because after a while, they don't know who they truly are. They're just the sum total of whatever masks they're wearing, mm-hmm. and they actually start to buy their own game. Hmm. Hmm. You know, they but they start. You know, they start believing their own press releases. Right. You know. Right. And that, that can become a problem. Now, it can become a problem for threes, I think, because they're willing to, you know, an unhealthy three, a, a three that doesn't have much self-knowledge. What will happen is they're, they're, they're liable to cut corners.
2: Right. Right. Which right. is the they're, definition they're, of compromise, right? Yes. Yep. Yes.
3: So if, if it's going to make me look like a success, mm. I don't mind cutting a corner to get there.
2: Right. I'll exaggerate right. the numbers. I'll, uh, I'll, yep. I'll, I'll, I'll push down the things that don't make me look good. I'll exaggerate the things right. that do make me look good. And I think one of the keys, I, I didn't write about this and didn't see it coming, but I think one of the challenges to compromise is the tendency to compartmentalize. Right, so if you have a mm-hmm. if you if you can separate who you are publicly from who you are privately, who you are at work from who you are at home, who you are on stage from who you are off stage, which I have a very difficult time doing, uh, but mm-hmm. I just wonder if you have a personality type that that lends to that compromise becomes easier because you're almost two different people, and you talk to people who have had egregious moral lapses, and they're like, yeah, that I don't know who that person was. Okay, so you mm-hmm. know who you
3: know. Interestingly enough. Wow. Do you know what number on the enneagram tends to fall into that? No. Ones. Really. Yeah. Wow. Let me give you a. Let me give you an example of it. Yeah. Elliot Spitzer.
2: Oh right. Yeah.
3: The attorney general for the state of New York. Right. What did he do? He was. He's such a one. Right. Huh. And he's. He's on this platform and he's. You know, going up against Vice. Right. Right. And he's always talking about Vice. Mm. And then you come to find out in his private life, right, hidden away in the background, is this wow. other secret world of you know he's out with call girls and doing his thing right yeah and he gets busted for it everybody's like oh mr clean i think the guys on wall street used to call him mr clean right because he was always busting people on wall street for for you know uh uh, for wrongdoing you know i guess uh financial wrongdoing and, of course, everyone just rejoiced when the guy turned out to have this secret compartment in his life wow. where he was acting out. So here's – we call it the trapdoor of ones. They have a hmm. trapdoor. Um, do you remember Ted Haggard? Oh, I do. Yeah. Okay. So now here's a pastor who was – a that's an Enneagram one who had a trapdoor. door. Wow. You know, he he would talk about someone who didn't see it coming. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's like compartmentalized. Wow. So you have a guy that's always railing uh, and in his situation. I mean, this is the irony here, of course, is that, you know, Ted Haggard was always um, preaching against sexual immorality, right? Mm. And, of course, he's got a thing going on the side. Mm. Yeah. Right? In secret. So what happens with the ones is they're, Pushing down all these animal instincts that they deem inappropriate, they they mm. keep them in the shadow, and but because these are animal instincts, you know, energies, what happens is they got to get out somehow. Wow. And if you don't, if you don't manage them correctly, they'll come out in a very bad way, sideways,
2: right? Have you just on Ted Haggard? Any chance you read Dan Harris's Ten Percent Happier? And the reason I ask is he's got. Uh, a stra- a wonderfully empathetic take on Ted Haggard in that book. No, so this I guy haven't. is not a Christian. Uh, he would call himself a Jewish Buddhist, secular Buddhism. Uh, he's into the whole meditation mindfulness thing. ABC News guy, mm-hmm. Dan Harris. Anyway, 10% happier. He talks yep. about his journey to where he is now and how he was reporting on uh, you know, fundamentalist Christianity or evangelical conservatism and how he actually has a deep affection for, in a, in a you know, platonic sense, for Ted Haggard prior to his fall and after his fall. He called Ted mm. Haggard for a year after the story broke and Ted was so broken he didn't call him back. And then finally he did and they struck up a friendship again. Fascinating. It's one yeah. of the most empathetic takes on Christianity from a non-Christian wow. that I've read after a moral fall.
3: So here's the thing about moral falls. I've seen them over and over again, and I've seen them in the church. I've seen them in government. I've seen them in business, right? Yeah. Literally, over and over again, it's the tile of your book. They'll say, I didn't see it coming. Yep. Or, and so I always like, I think to myself, boy, the Enneagram could have helped Ted Haggard hmm. hmm. he, Because if he knew that ones typically have a trap door. Wow then he could have said i know myself well enough that mm. that i have to you know be careful guard against a trapdoor, right? Wow, a 3 would be able to say hey i know myself well enough that if i'm not careful i will cut a corner in order to look like a success yeah right mm. uh, to cross the finish line mm-hmm. first you know uh, uh you know an 8 may say i know that i have a particular weakness or proclivity toward cynicism let's say i have to guard against it so you see that self-knowledge is just like it's like a a secondary witness inside of your head your heart that's observing yourself monitoring your own behaviors thoughts feelings actions and and saying you know just keeping an eye on it and as you use the word self-regulation i'm regulating in real time yeah so for me i know as a four if I'm not careful, I can lapse into cynicism or depression, you know, and when I see it coming up, uh, you know, a little bell goes off in my head because I know the Enneagram and I can go careful, right? careful, right? And, and okay. So here's how I put it. The other day I was looking at a car and it has one of these radar systems on the side view mirrors so that if you start to drift into another lane, yes. it bounces you back into your own lane. It pulls the wheel <laughs> so that you, you, right? That's what the Enneagram can do. Uh-huh. It's like you start to leave your lane, you start to lapse in a direction that yeah. you shouldn't be going and your mind goes, uh-oh, careful, boom, back into the lane, be careful. Now, ah, if you don't same. have self-knowledge, you don't even know you're drifting out of your lane. Right,
2: right. Right, right. That's good. You know, or, or your right. wife tells you after you've already swapped paint with the guy next to you. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, did you just <laughs> say <laughs> swap paint? Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I mean, seriously, I've seen so many leaders where, you know, my heart kind of breaks a little bit when I hear about a leader who's had a big fall, because it's like, uh, man, mm. if you had just known your type and had some self-knowledge and humility as a result of knowing your type, you you would have seen that coming. Yeah,
2: God you really. would have. Anyone else that's you, susceptible, because threes and ones to compromise, or?
3: Yeah, I mean, again, as I said, every type could, but for yeah, example, yeah. I think some have you know uh either proclivities or dimensions to their personality that they have to be careful nines for example might might fall into a compromised situation because they didn't know how to say no
2: mm
0: yeah,
3: um, they 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 kind of merged with the groups or another person's agenda. That wasn't a good thing, and they went along with it because they were afraid of the conflict that would arise if they stood up against it.
2: So my curiosity would be: what about sevens? Because you look at them and their lust for life, and you see them, you know, just just whatever. Like my seven friends make me laugh. Would they be susceptible or not really? Yeah, uh,
3: definitely. I mean, uh, honestly, people tend to think of threes as the narcissists of the Enneagram, but really it's sevens. Oh, really? Yeah, for sure. Uh. Now, again, that's a very unhealthy seven. So I'm not painting every seven as a narcissist, right? I'm just saying that Uh, Of all the types, if I was going to draw a parallel between a psychological, uh, you know, category like narcissism, I would draw it toward the seven because it's all about their having fun. It's all about their, Mm. and and they'll, they'll rationalize Mm -hmm. doing things that-
2: That's what I'm thinking, like one night stands, you know, or you fall into addictions. Is that, is that more typical of a seven?
3: Yep. Yes. I, I, you know, I- you know, I've been in recovery for uh, a good number of years now and I see a lot of sevens in the yeah. rooms, you know, yeah. but actually, you know, you see every type, but sevens definitely because there's a struggle with impulsivity there. Right. Right. And so I think, yeah, I meet a lot of sevens in the rooms because that whole act first, think later thing can get them into trouble. Same with eights. You know, mm-hmm. i meet a lot of eights. I meet a lot of fours in the rooms. So you know, it's also partly genetics, I think. It's it's sort of a, a complicated thing. I mean a lot of nines in the rooms, uh, because their natural tendency is to narcotize or to numb yes. out. That's a yeah. big that's the big defense system for nines. That's their that's their major major defense strategy hmm. is narcotizing. And so I think that, you know, again, like I said, all types can lapse into moral compromise, but certain types just have to be careful, right? Yeah. Um going on, let's say let's talk about burnout for a second. Yeah, yeah. Eights for sure.
2: <laughs> That's me. And, yeah.
3: and they don't even know they are. I know. You don't even know it. Because eights are what we would call a self forgetting type. Right. And they forget that they're not invincible. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And when you forget that, you are a candidate for burning yourself oh, out.
2: Oh, I'll tell you, I, you know, I, I, I thought before I burned out, the rules just don't apply to me. And then you realize, oh, they do. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> apparently, apparently I'm human, right? And, and that was my story all through my 30s. It was as our church grew and it grew quite explosively. It was just more people equals more hours. It was really, really difficult. You know, Ian, what's really fascinating for me is now for 13 years, by the grace of God, I've stayed out of burnout, but it is such, a, I would say, daily awareness. Like this is this has mm-hmm. become who I am. And I write a little bit about it and didn't see it coming. It'll be a big chunk of my next book, which doesn't have a title yet. It comes out uh, fall of 2020, where I talk about, and I teach it in the High Impact Leader course, but basically every day I think about how much sleep am I getting? Am I eating properly? Am I exercising? Am I, uh, you know, am I even flights? I was talking yesterday with one of my team and we're booking flights for an upcoming speaking engagement. And I've got a new uh, person on the team and they were going to fly me out at such and such a time. And one of my longer time team members is like, he can't do a flight that late, you know? Uh, and, and there are limits. Mm-hmm. And I think as an eight, Prior to burnout, I didn't think I had any limits. And now on the other side, I'm like, oh, if I respect those, I get a much better run out of this. And I feel a lot better. I'm much healthier. And so I would say, and, and of course, ironically in all that is I've discovered the more I respect and understand my limits, the more I'm actually capable of.
1: Hey, we hope you've enjoyed part one of our two-part podcast with Carrie Newhoff. Make sure you stick around next week for part two. It just gets better. And until then, we hope you have a fantastic week.